things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. As was with last week, we have ourselves quite a passage before us today to try to unpack. And so I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will be uh, open your hearts and minds for us to press through this and weigh some of the matters before us well. Um, I'm sure um, you're probably going, oh my, we got lots to cover today. And we do. Um, we're coming to an uh, end of a series of teaching within Paul's letter to the, uh, to the Corinthians uh, where he's been dealing with several issues that have been plaguing the church at Corinth. And most recently, since chapter 11, most of those concerns, the lion's share of his instruction and correction has been related to the worship of the church and the right order of the church. And so he spends an enormous amount of time unpacking some of these various issues that are out, um, they're, just, they're just out of line in the, in the church there at Corinth. And I can't wait to dig into this text with you. You might think, well, this is not one. I, I really can't wait because I really feel like we're going to be so edified. This combined with last week, especially because they really do go together. Um, because over the course of the last eight years since we started Grace Church, and last month we celebrated our eighth anniversary, one of the areas that I have sought to put serious thinking into is corporate worship. What we do here really does matter and why we do it matters. And one of the great discoveries that I have found and have continually tried to seek to understand better and more thoroughly is this principle that comes out of the Reformation called the regulative principle. Some of you guys are really going to geek out with me this morning because you just heard that. You're like, oh, yeah, let's get after that. And you're like, I don't even know what this guy's talking about. We're going to do our best to help you come along, okay? So we're all going to do this journey together. But when I say regulative principle, I'm speaking of one of two different schools of thought that churches have sought to think about the, the, what we do in worship. On the one side, there's this school called the normative school, the normative principle, okay? And I know I'm going to do a little teaching here for a second, so just kind of follow along with me. And this school basically espouses that unless a practice is expressly condemned in Scripture, you um, may indeed uh, use it in worship. Now, I think most of us in here, especially if you've been around us long enough, know that you can see the inherent dangers with the idea of a normative principle. If it's not, as long as it's not, as long as it's not excluded in Scripture, you can do whatever you want in, in worship. And we can imagine all of the different ways that um, can go awry, right? And, and you know this. Why? Because worship service then can become, become any amalgamation of the human imagination. And indeed, if you've been paying any attention, you know that this is exactly where we go. This is when, when left unhinged, unlocked, this is where worship tends to go, especially in our American evangelical context. We can just go any, uh, any kinds of direction here. And you can think of a few examples. You might be thinking of a few examples in your head. Let me give you a couple that, I, that you may not be aware of. Um, maybe you, you are. But this past week, there, is a, there was a lot of bandwidth given on the uh, Twitter webs okay, uh, about a church in Oklahoma that is going to build their entire worship service today around the theme of Super Bowl. Um, and you might think, well, that, that seems kind of innocuous. Well, not really. It's a problem because even their sermon is going to be built around Super Bowl commercials. And so what they're going to do is do 30-second theology, show the commercial, and then they're going to do some theology for 30 seconds, move on to the next commercial, and it's just going to be basically the pastor's thoughts 
on whatever these commercials may be, and, they're, and I'm sure they're going to be there for laughs and entertainment and any other thing. Um, hopefully you can see the problem with that, because ultimately, as we've talked about last week, the higher gift is what? Ministry of the Word. And when the Word doesn't drive everything you do and is not so central and so clear in the Scriptures and so in, in the worship of the church, um, you end up going into things like this. There's a church I know of that uh, does what they call at the movie series every year. And so they pick a movie series and every week they'll, for the week they'll pick a movie and then they'll do the theology of whatever that movie is. Um, again, sounds innocuous, but the problem is behind the fanfare, something is lost. And I'll talk about more of that here in a moment. So that you don't think I'm picking on evangelicals for a moment, let's, talk, let's pick on Episcopals for a minute. Um, one Episcopal diocese out west has an annual creation worship Sunday. And I kid you not, the congregants will come in dressed as different parts of creation, like trees. And they will do the whole, if you know anything about Anglican worship, they do the processional at the beginning behind the cross. And they literally come dancing in like different parts of creation as they come into the worship service. You can't make this stuff up, y'all. I mean, I kid you not, this is, I know, I know, I know. Uh, one Catholic diocese several years ago started doing something that caught a little bit of popularity. They started doing Pet Blessing Sunday. So you bring your, bring FIFO, FIFO, uh, FIFO whatever, whatever your name of your dog is. Fido, that's it, Fido. See, I, I logged it up there and then I just, mm, swing and a miss. Um, but uh, you bring them and... He gets blessed, gets his sins forgiven, I guess. I don't really know what's happening with the pets. I mean, my dog's selfish, but I mean, I'm, I mean, I don't know that, I mean, yeah, okay. And we can go on and on, right? Those are just a few of the most, you know, most popular ones I know of. So that's the one school. The normative principle says if it's not expressly condemned in scripture, you can do pretty much whatever you want to. And, uh, and I know that might be overreached. Not all churches are doing this. I get that. But the reality is if there's no, if there's no like boundaries, there's no, we don't get hemmed in with something, then we don't really know what to do in the human imagination go all kinds of different directions. So when I tell you that I have found and discovered and have been weighing in more into this idea of regulative worship, it's a position that actually takes the opposite of the normative position in which basically says only that which is expressly commanded in the Bible is, should be employed in the worship of uh, the church. Um, and I think in general, of course, there's many Protestants, most Protestant denominations have, have probably at some point held this view. Although there be disagreements, as we always do, between different denominations. But basically the general pr principle here is that there's just the ordinary means God just wants his church to do. Preach the word, pray the word, sing the word. Um, the word is so central so that you are seeing Christ every time the church is gathered. And, uh, but this has been the general practice of most Protestant denominations, but it's taken a hit since the Second Great Awakening. And what I mean by that is, is that since that time, the, this, this, this kind of conviction has slowly been eroded because we have less confidence in it. Why? Because we want to have something that will attract people to the church. A lot of people call this Finneyism, named after his namesake, Charles Finney, who was a great revivalist of the Second Great Awakening. And basically in his, his, uh, his ministry and in the churches he led and the revival efforts he led, basically he had the idea that... Um, anything is justified in the worship of God's people so long as ultimately people are evangelized. 
Well, you can see that kind of justification for pretty much everything we do out there today, right? And you can see how that then goes into a really, really bad direction. B.B. Warfield, the great Presbyterian who taught at Presbyterian Seminary many, um, Princeton Seminary many years ago, back in the 1800s, he says, God might be eliminated from Finney's theology entirely, and it would not change one aspect of his theology. And I think he's right, because I think that's what happens. You can take God out of your theology in the effort of trying to evangelize, and eventually you end up with a Christless Christianity. Um, and he's right. But when you, and so when you go into these kinds of ways, you end up blurring the very thing you're trying to exalt. You end up blinding people and taking their focus off of Christ because the fanfare and the antics can be, hardly be called evangelistic at that point. It's, I had a professor tell me when I was in seminary, he says, what you get people with is what you have to keep people with. And so when you have fanfare, you have to keep ant, upping the ante. When you offer Disneyland to your children, you eventually you have to get, Disneyland has to get bigger. You see where this goes, right? Well, in the regular principle, we just say, look, the Bible's plain. And when the Bible's plain, that can be the most evangelistic thing that can happen in the church. Because we're making plain the Bible and the message of the Bible, Christ, by reading it together. You, if you're new to our church, you probably read a lot of scripture this morning, and maybe you're not used to that. That's okay. We pray the scriptures. Every song in here is driven by theology, and we sing the scriptures. We're preaching the scriptures this morning, and we're displaying the scriptures through sacrament when we take the Lord's table here together in just a little while. And so for me personally, as we think about these last few verses of chapter 14, I'm super excited to dive into these because I think the life of the worship, it can't be anything more essential to the life of the church than it's gathered worship because it's there that we get to show forth what the church actually is. And it's something that I'm intensely and increasingly more passionate about as one of your pastors. So here's the main idea that we're going to tease out this morning. It's a little bit different from what you have in your guide because I've just tried to change it just so that it makes more sense. But here, just follow along with me. Christian worship that is well-ordered and glorifying God by making Christ clear. So there's a statement. There's a, there's a condition. Let me say it again. Christian worship that is well-ordered and glorifies God by making Christ clear. That kind of worship, it builds up the church and is good for your neighbor. The kind of worship that you and I offer this morning that builds this up and that will build you up this morning, and the kind of worship that we're going to do this morning that actually is good for our neighbors this morning is that kind of worship that is well-ordered and glorifying God and making Christ clear. That is the most evangelistic worship we could participate in as the church. And that's why we are always intensely thinking about why we put the Bible at the center of everything we do and why we have this worship bulletin for us to follow along through each and every Sunday. So let's get a little context here so that we can kind of build back up to where we are. We have been in this series, chapters 11 through up to this point, and Paul has been dealing with several issues that are going to come back up today in this text. He's been dealing with the issues of rabble-rousing women, uh, rabble women who have been causing a stir there in uh, Corinth, and they're prophesying and praying in such a manner that it disrespected their husbands and the leaders of the church. We talked about that a few weeks ago. You can go back and do that work on your own. Uh, we may touch on it here in a few minutes. We've seen Paul address classism in this Corinthian church that gave way to elitism and favoritism. There were the haves and the have-nots. 
We've seen Paul deal with um, this kind of exalting certain gifting over other gifting, particularly in the realm of the gift of tongues. And he's been in process correcting all these things, as we saw last week in chapter 14. And so as we come to the conclusion here of chapter 14 this morning, he's going to bring this, he's going to summarize all of his views under this issue with this injunction of order your worship well, right? That it's to seek good order in the worship of, of the church in such a way that the church, as I said already, is built up and Christ is made clear. That is what we're aiming to do. That is what Paul is telling the church to do, to, to order the church in such a way, order your worship in such a way that the church is built up and Christ is made clear. I cannot say that to you more enough in this sermon. So, verse 26, Paul is dealing with here in these first verse, the absence of that kind of worship. He's dealing with this, what then brothers, when you come together, each of you has a hymn, each of you has a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. So he's, he's saying, so all of you are coming, and you've got all these things you want to employ in worship, and you're drawing in worship, and here's his injunction. Let all things be done for building up. So in the early church, you guys probably already know this, there were a variety of different practices that were being used by the, uh, by the church, but in the Corinthian church, those practices were, being, were doing more harm than they were doing good. We've seen this over the last few weeks. And the issue wasn't the hymn. The issue wasn't the prophecy or even the tongue back in those days, that is. The issue was an individualistic, uh, a competitive spirit that shaded the parts of the church, the members of the church, so that they were more focused on bringing attention to themselves than bringing glory to God. So these guys using these giftings were more about what they were bringing to the church than, what, than Christ being exalted. And so then now how, how useful or biblical their gift may have been to the church in those days, the result was this disorderly mess that did anything but exalt Christ. And so what Paul is dealing with here, this summary verse here in verse 26, is a, he's saying there's this absence of a central purpose. There's an absence of direction in corporate worship for, corporate worship for you, Corinthians. And we need to correct that. We need to get it well-ordered again. And so Paul's injunction is really clear there. He states it two times in this passage we're looking at this morning. Verse 26, let all things be done for building up. And then he says later on in verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. So think about those two verses as bookends to our passage this morning. Think about these all things that Paul is doing here. And we can construct in Paul's mind a central vision and a central purpose to what worship should be doing in, in the life of the church. So the all things he's talking about here is those things that we do. We refer to the elements of worship and the things that we will employ in the time that we are gathered here this morning. And whatever those things are, and again, Christians have differed slightly on some of these issues over the years, right? And, and because there's really not just one list in Scripture we go to, although you do a good study of Scripture, you can find the main things, which is what I'm going to unpack for you, I think, here in just a moment. So these all things are those things we're doing together. All things you're doing, whatever you're doing, they need to be done with, one, the proper aim in mind, which is verse 26, build up the church. That's the aim of worship. But the means of doing that is, verse 40, in the context of decent, well-ordered worship. 
You can't separate the two. So if you put all this together, what we find is a really wonderful construction, an apostolic, if you will, vision from Paul of what worship is supposed to be in the life of the church. And when you pull all that together, it's really wonderful. Christian worship is the gathering of the church to worship and glorify God that centers on the ministry of the word and not just the ministry of the word in general, but the ministry of the word when it's done rightly centers on the person and work of Jesus. As I said earlier, it makes Christ clear. So it's not that we just come here and preach the Bible, our own thoughts about the Bible, we come here and the Bible drives everything we're doing because at the center of all the Bible's witness is who? Jesus. It makes Christ clear. So when we pull all this together and we move on, we move on here, now Paul is going to, in a few moments, is going to be dealing with these areas that he's been teasing out. I mentioned here a second ago, but before we get there, what I want to do just for a moment, if you'll just let me entertain it just for a second, is I want to show you those elements that we're seeking and why we're doing this and just kind of real from a high level walk through this bulletin with you i think this is a great this might be the only opportunity i get to do that with you in a context of a worship service and so i'm gonna take a little bit of liberty here as to why we're doing this and why we think this is again not perfect things could change things could be ordered a little bit differently and we're certainly talking about some of those things and have done so over the years this is not to say that we get the final word on that but if you have a worship god maybe you can follow along with me just for a moment See, our worship is, as we said, is regulatory, regulative, meaning we want the scriptures to drive everything that we do so that it constructs a picture of Christ and his work for us. And so we always start with what? The call of worship. And we said, Grant rightly said this morning, it's God's first word. And when we say God's first word, we mean God is the one who invites us to worship. Now, that, now think about that. If God's the one who invites us to worship him, he's also the one who gets to set the rules of worship. We don't get to set the rules of worship. And this is unfortunately what happens a lot of times is we end up making, we think we can kind of pay fast and loose with that. We can't. And then you, then if, so then if you're then invited to come into God's presence, what's the first thing that happens for you and I? We have that Isaiah moment, don't we? We have that moment where we're like, oh no, he's holy. I'm not holy. So then what's the most natural thing we can do when we come into a presence of a holy God? Confess our sin. So you see where we're going with that. God's people are invited in God's presence and they have no other recourse but to acknowledge and confess their sin before a holy God. But we're not just left in our sin. What do we do next? We are then have to be reminded that God doesn't relate to us based on our sin anymore. He relates to us based on his pardon, his grace, his covenant. And so we have this section called the assurance of pardon. God's people must understand the great promises of God towards his people and that they are founded not on their work before God, their merit before God, but God's work for them, for us. Now, when we've done that, then we come to this little part where we, where we, we, we have a part of our confession. So we might be reading the Apostles' Creed. We might be reading the Nicene Creed. We might be reading, as we are right now, we're going through the um, Heidelberg Catechism. And we're confessing certain anchors of our faith. When we've now been invited and we're whole before God and we're reminded of the grace of God before, as we stand before God, we can now confess those essential aspects of our faith regularly as a reminder of what we believe. And this is why creeds matter. This is why confessions matter. It's why catechisms matter. It doesn't mean that those things lord over scripture, but they're actually good summaries and essential summaries of the doctrine of scripture that matters. And then eventually, then we have a prayer typically or something of, of a collect offering there. 
because it's a response to the good faith in which we enjoy with God. And then we have this, what we've included here in this space, the passing of the peace of Christ. And let's be honest with you. This is be honest. With you, this is where lots of people disagree, and it's and it's okay. In fact, we are still weighing some of these things and had some good insights from people who share with us, and we're still not sure this is the place we want this to be. But the main idea behind it is that it's not just a meet and greet time, but it comes after what? What we've confessed. We've confessed our sin, we've been assured of our pardon, and now we've confessed our faith together. And then guess what we can do? We can pass the peace of Christ to one another. Peace be with you, brothers and sisters. That's the idea here. Again, some people might put this out to the Lord's Supper later on. Um, some people might do this a little earlier in the service. Take some wisdom there not necessarily be the last place we put this, but it's still there. And then one of our pastors comes forward, one of our elders comes forward, and they pass, they, I mean, they, they pray, and they lead us to the Lord's Prayer, and then they pray over the church. They intercede for the church and our mission and the, and the needs in our church and the things going on in our world, and they're praying in that direction so that now we come to the Word of God, we open the Word of God, we read the Word of God, and then we pre preach the Word of God. And after we have preached the Word of God, we now then, in a, few, in a little bit, we will come to the table as believers. Those who have confessed Christ, have been properly baptized, have been baptized in Christ. They will share this table together. And then there will be some kind of response. We sing a song during that time. It doesn't mean we have an altar call. In fact, that's very Finneyism. That's actually a fairly new thing. We don't do altar calls here at Grace. And some people get a little bit turned upside down by that. They're like, oh, how dare you not have an altar call? That's actually a really new practice. The historic church didn't really do that. But we do think there's a place for a response. And that response primarily is coming to the Lord's table. That response might be you not coming to the Lord's table and getting right with another brother and sister and hear that in the morning. That might be the response. It may be that you getting right before God and staying in your seat and praying before you come to the table. It could be any number of things that were happening during that time. But it can be a response where the Spirit nudges, urges us into repentance and faith. And then, of course, then at that end, then we have the final blessing. God gets the final word, the benediction. And it's a blessing of God for his people who are now sent into the world with the truth of God's word. And then we sing the doxology together. Again, that's how we do it. There could be some changes here and there, and we might still do some of those things as, we've, as I've already noted. The goal here, though, and I, and I, and I give that to you just for, in a real brief overview, because I want you to hear me say this. We're not striving after uniformity here. That's not the goal. We're striving after unity. Uniformity and unity are not the same thing. Uniformity says, you've got to do it my way and my way only. Unity says, no, we need to do this together so that Jesus is seen and I can help you see Jesus and you can help me see Jesus. That's the difference. Even the reformers, Calvin, the Puritans, they tinkered with the order of worship constantly. In fact, I've got in my possession at least four, four, three, four, whatever, different versions of Calvin's own way he would change the liturgy over the 10 or 12 years of, of ministry and how he was always seeking to do it better um, and maybe do it more clearly. So it's not that we're looking for uniformity. It doesn't mean things won't change or things can't. It's not that we're trying to fit everything into a form, but we're seeking to be unified in Christ. That's what we're after. So, a regulative vision, as I mentioned earlier, a regulatory vision of worship shouldn't create rancor among us. It shouldn't create persnickety among us. 
It shouldn't do any of those kinds of things. What it should is create the fruit of faith among us. That's the goal. And the fruit of faith is this, that we see Christ in his majesty. And two, we see the beauty of this redeemed community together, of what God's doing here. That's what we should see. That's the fruit of faith, to see Christ and see the beauty of what he's creating in this community so that at the end of the day, the gospel is made clear. So this is the issue Paul has been trying to tease out as it relates to this issue of tongues, prophecy, and these unruly women in the church there. And so we're going to talk about these three things. He comes back to them here at the very end of this section, and he deals with them in order of speaking in tongues, a competitive spirit within prophetic speech, and the issue of women who are speaking improperly in the church. And so we're going to try to walk through these things, and probably briefly. I don't have as much time as I'd like to to expand on a lot of these things, but hopefully get this essence of what's happening here. The problem, the first problem he deals with is, and he's been dealing with, as we talked about last week, is this speaking in tongues. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or, or at most three, and in, in, in each, I'm sorry, in each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So what Paul's first doing here is he's instructing those who had this gift of tongues. So there was those who still had gifts of tongues. We talked about last week that that's, we believe that's, by and large, uh, ceased in the life of the church today. But now in Paul's day, there were really those who did speak in tongues, so he had to address this issue. And when we talk about speaking in tongues, remember last week we're talking about speaking in known languages. That's what Paul has in mind here, most likely. And here Paul says that if someone has a tongue, they must go in turn, but there also should be an interpreter. In other words, like we saw last week, simply speaking in tongues without an interpreter didn't do any good to the church. It just created confusion among the church, and it was of no benefit to them. So if there was no interpreter, not an interpreter, he would commend to them their silence. Keep it between them, him and the Lord, if the Lord's doing something in them. That helps us see that tongues, as we will see with prophecy, is not something that's spontaneous. This is what we kind of see in modern days. It's not something that just comes upon us and we have no control over. It was something that they had capacity to use the gifts as God saw them in that time. And that certainly would have been, uh, been the fact, the same thing for tongues. So that's why modern uses of tongues mostly are probably fanaticism. Because ultimately it's people saying, I'm just controlled by the Spirit and I have no control over it. And they end up running into the, up on a pulpit. I saw one video yesterday of a guy who jumps up on a pulpit and he's dancing like this and he jumps off the pulpit, runs into the baptistry, falls in the baptistry. I'm just like, the Spirit did that apparently. I, no, no, no. Um, gifts are God's gift to us to be used with discernment and used properly and for the building up of the church as Paul talked about last week. Not all gifts, as I said last week, are relevant for all occasions. And so it is clear from Paul's instructions that it's utter confusion happening in this church there at Corinth, and he's rebuking them for their indifference to how their use of the gift was causing confusion and unclarity about seeing Christ. That's the main issue here. So he's, he says, your, your disorderedness, well, this is one of the ways your, order, your, your service is disordered. You just... You, just, you have people who are just, in the name of the Spirit, are just doing whatever they want to do. That's wrong, Paul says. Then you have those who are, in the name of prophetic speech, are dominating the church. 
They're dominating what other people can hear. So look what it says here in verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh in what is said. So that's the instruction. Let two or three speak. So when I was in Belarus a few years ago, I went to the First Baptist Church of Salusk. I guess they call it First Baptist Church. It was the Baptist Church of Salusk. And they, their service was two hours long and their three elders all preached short, what they would call prophecies, prophetic words, sermons. And that's what they would do. So I think they're, they're most likely getting that from this text in some capacity. So if someone has, can speak so properly, they let, um, let others weigh in what is said. So then the, the point is, is that there's a way for people to engage in some capacity, maybe not necessarily in a worship service, but they should be able to weigh in. And, but then here's where he gets into verse 30. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So in other words, make room for other people to speak too and not just dominate what's actually happening there. For you can all prophesy one by one and so that all may learn and all may be encouraged and the spirits of prophets may are subject to prophets. So what's he getting at here? You had this group of guys, probably leaders, super apostles maybe, as Paul was dealing with in the Corinthian church, and they were just controlling the platform. And they weren't letting other people come in and correct them. And so they're kind of lording over the church with their, their preaching and their teaching in that moment, whatever it may have been, and they weren't allowing other people, and they weren't letting other people to engage in what they're seeing and, and teaching. And, and more than that, they weren't letting other prophets and other people like weigh in on it. And they weren't being subject, they weren't being accountable to the others that were there, particularly the leaders of the church. And thus, verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He's saying you're, you're creating confusion because you are trying to lord over the people with this idea of how you are preaching and prophesying and using the ministry of the word in the church. And so these super apostles that Paul had to constantly had to deal with in his letters to the Corinthians are most likely this group he's talking about. They're just dominating the people there, and that's a problem. And they, and they weren't willing to, to submit themselves to the leaders of the church, to the congregation of the church in any way, shape, or form. And this is, again, they weren't willing to submit themselves to the other prophets of the church. Um, and so Paul's injunction is that their word had, that, that their word has, uh, if their word has authority, then it will be confirmed by the other prophets. But if it doesn't, it won't be. And they're afraid to let other people confirm it. So, side note, this is why it's wonderful to have a plurality of elders in our church. Because you have a group of men, qualified men, who can hash things out, correct one another when needed, helps protect the church from one or two voices dominating the authoritative speech or language or the, or the platform of the church. Because at the end of the day, men who refuse to be accountable and remain unhinged from the historical witness and teaching of the church are not men who should be followed. They're not men who should be listened to. And they're certainly not men who should be installed into the offices of the church. It should not be done that way. And uh, I can think of a lot of examples in modern day of men who I think that might fit this category, but I digress. Um, see, the prophets that Paul seems to be concerned with here in this church as we will see later, are those whom feel no need to submit to the leaders of their church. And if you ever meet somebody, that's why we take our due diligence when we're selecting elders for our churches. Are these men humble? Are they teachable? Can they take correction? If we told them at the end of the process, this is one of the first questions we always ask an elder candidate. If we get to the end of this and we tell you you're not going to be an elder, are you going to be okay with that? Can you still be a good member here? Because if you can't, let's just go ahead and deal with that now. 
and cause, not cause the church harm. Because I've seen that happen in churches sometimes, and it ends up causing a whole lot of disruption. And then we come to this big deal here at the end, the one you've been waiting on. Women, what are you supposed to do when you walk in here in the morning? Because I know you guys were talking this morning. I, I mean, I talked to a few of you this morning. So what is Paul dealing with here in um, verses 33 through 35? Well, let's just read it again, 34. The women should keep silent in the churches. No, actually back it up to the end of 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And everyone's like, okay, so let's, let's, what do we do with this? It seems on the surface when you read that, that Paul's taking issue with women speaking in general, and that there's this kind of kind of leveled injunction about the role and the activity of women when they're gathered with the church, particularly in their life of the church and the, and the worship of the church, and that it was inappropriate for women to speak in any way, shape, or form. And you and I both know this is one of those debated passages, but I think when we go back and compare it to what's happening in chapter 11, we start to see that there's actually a lot of symmetry between what's happening there. On its face, it looks like Paul. It seems like Paul is saying that women should not talk in the church at all, but wait until they get home to ask their husbands. And there's a lot of popularity of people bringing this verse up today, and they're like, no, women shouldn't talk, and they should just go home and make sandwiches for their husbands, that kind of thing. I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here at all. I really don't. And I'm not trying to play side, fast and loose with this text. I think it, you put it in context with chapter 11, and we'll see a little bit better of what's happening. Here's what we do know. It can't be an admonition that women should ne must never talk in the public gathering of the church. It just can't be. And the reason we know that the reason we know that is because he tells women, they, he does in chapter 11 give instructions that they may prophesy and preach in the life of the church, but in appropriate ways with their head covered. We talked about that. Again, don't have time to get into that text. But there is a place where women are engaging in the life of the church with each other and with the rest of the church in some capacity. So that can't be what Paul's getting at here in this text as I have wrestled through this as much as, I'm possible, as I possibly can. He, he, is, um, he can commends them to actually prophesy and pray, but do it in an appropriate way. Um, and you remember back in chapter 11, just to kind of help us get a little bit of context, these were wives who were, who largely, as we could assess it, they were disregarding the preeminence of Christ in the worship setting by drawing attention to themselves. They were disregarding the good order of creation. They were disregarding the respect of God's design that should be on display in the church between men and women, and particularly between husbands and wives. There was some kind of like sense that they could just disregard that. And the context here in verse 33 is a little different, but it's not entirely different not entirely different in, in the fact that what we're dealing with here is now they are not allowed to speak in church, but it comes out of the context of verse 33. Let's, let's read it um, together. It says, the, I'm sorry, verse, 30, yeah, verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, as in all the churches of this, I'm sorry, it goes back to the, I'm sorry, I meant context in verse 31. For you all can prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged and the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. So it says there, he tells them, let, it first be, let the first one be silent, and then and the others may weigh in. And so what we're probably dealing with in this text is, there's this time there in this prophecy, the time when the, when the word's been dealt, 
and there's a time to engage, and there's probably these women who were just being very disrespectful to the, the people who just prophesied, the men who are just prophesying most likely, and their husbands, or even their own husbands, and they're just, they're just kind of creating this confusion, this problem in the church. And Paul is saying right here, very clearly, you are doing something that is causing division. Again, the whole context of this is confusion in the church, disorderliness in the church. It's not some kind of admonition that you need to come in here, ladies, and never talk while you're in this room between 10.30 and 11.45 when we let out for church or whatever. That's not what seems to be the case here. It's in the context of this larger issue of causing confusion, causing disorder in the church. And so I want to make sure that we say this. So at the end of the day, the principle of the entire passage here, and we can do more talk on that later uh, on this particular issue, we're not dealing with an ab- a prohibition to women speaking. We're talking about rabble-rousing women, kind of like pastor's wives who make a big deal about cobbler. <laughs> right? Kind of like that. I'm sorry. I know. I'm going to pay for that one later. It's okay. I pay for things all day, every day. And I know someone said the elders are judging the pie competition next week. And I promise you, I will not give favor to cobbler over pie next week, okay? Although I do like a good cobbler because it's so much butterier. It's, it, it, uh, yeah, sorry. I mean, there we go. There we go. So we got some support for the cobbler crew here. That's awesome. All right. Sorry. Let's see if I can pull this back in now. <laughs> in all seriousness, at the end of the day, the principle is decorum. The principle is respect. The principle is, in, in worship should be one where Christ is made clear. And it's ordered in such a way that people can never, that the people present can never be distracted from seeing Jesus. And that's what he deals with in our third point. At the end of the day, the reason this is all a problem for you is because you don't have a great ground for well-ordered worship, the authority for well-ordered worship. Look at verse 36. Or was it from you, talking about the Corinthians, that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? So in other words, what he's saying there is, so do you think you've uh, got the corner of the market on the, on the word of God? Do you think you're the only ones who have the final say on what's in worship and whatever else? No, that's actually not what's happening. Again, going back to the idea that these super apostles, these prophets, these prophets were out there speaking without any sense of being accountable to anybody else. And that's a problem. And, and, and women were doing the same thing in the church. And that's a problem. No, he says in verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or, a spirit, or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you or a command of the Lord. So Paul grounds authority on what worship should happen in worship based on what? His teaching. He recognized his apostolic authority. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized, verse 38. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, again, for that day, but all things should be done decently and in order. Again, the sandwich we talked about earlier. So what we find out here, let's just kind of walk through it quickly. The word of God is not, did not come, does not come to you and I as if somehow or another you and I are free to do and say and interpret the Bible any way we want to. It comes to us, yes, through tradition in some sense. That doesn't mean tradition trumps scripture. We're not talking about papal authority here. We're not talking about any of that. But it says the church itself gets to, it works together to interpret God's word to each other. It doesn't just come to the Corinthian church and gets to do with what the Corinthian church doesn't get to do with the Bible, whatever they want to do with the Bible. 
No, God gave his word, uh, word to the church and preeminently through the apostles to give to the church, and Paul is one of them. The problem that befalls many in the church and was, and was a problem for the Corinthian church then, and it is today, is that we begin to think that our own discoveries, our own ingenuities regarding church and worship are ours alone and that God has uniquely spoken through us and we can then expand on it as we wish. And Paul debunks such a notion as pure rubbish. God has revealed his word to the apostles. He has given it to us through, through, through spiritually inspired men, spirit inspired men as we see especially in the New Testament there, specifically in Paul's ministry and his letters. And he's given it to these men to instruct us, the church, and how, of how we should conduct our life as a church and particularly our worship as a church. So therefore, apostolic tradition, right? Apostolic tradition and authority is where we, is where we go to think about properly ordered worship. This means that, the church, that church history matters and we learn from other people. That's the reason why you hear me talk a lot about the, the, the reformers and the patristics and we try to talk about those things, not because they have inherent authority themselves, but they're passing on the tradition of authoritative word interpretation of the word. All right, this means that church history matters and it's not putting these things on equal ground. Again, I said it a minute ago, um, we're not talking about a few select people in the modern day who are apostolic successors to the apostles. So we're not talking about the Pope. We're not talking about those uh, the select group of charismatic leaders who think they're the new apostolic leadership and voices for the modern day. Again, that's all pure nonsense. But we're talking about the continuance of apostolic teaching handed down through the scriptures and passed down through the history of the church. And we are a part of that. And we should be a part of it. Again, that's why we use creeds and confessions. Why? Because we're saying what the church has always said. That's what we want to be about. We're talking about that. We're talking about faith once delivered. So Paul then, just to kind of start kind of landing the plane, Paul here makes it clear to the church that anyone who doesn't rightly recognize the authority that God has instituted in the church through the word delivered through the apostles, well, they should not be recognized. They should not be recognized as legitimate leaders and trustworthy handlers of God's word, and they should be rebuked. And there were some men prophesying, or people, women, trying to prophesy in this setting, and they need to be rebuked. They need to be rebuked with, um, with full force. Christians like this will always seek to stand on their own wisdom and not on the wisdom of the great tradition of the church history and the word of God being, being handed down to us throughout all these years, they will seek to establish a church in their own likeness instead of a well-ordered manner. And so we want to be here at Grace Church, a church that gives attention to these things, not because, because listen, here's the reason. You know why there's so much word in here? Because at the end of the day, if I say anything contrary to it, you know what's better. Not me. That's it. Or any of the elders. Because if we put the word before you every week, guess what happens? I have to abide by that, right? I have to lead from in that. And, that, and, and the elders have to lead from in that. So, when we do worship well, and let's finish up, it brings God glory. It doesn't bring us glory. When we do worship well, it makes Christ clear, number two. When we do worship well, it builds the church. And when we do worship well, it's a profound good to our neighbor.
Because when someone walks in off that street and they come in here and they believe any of the lies the world has to give them, and we know that they're, they're alive and well and they're all over the place, just, when they come in here and they see a word-drenched church, a Christ-exalting and entranced church, they will see truth. They'll see truth in the word being preached, in the word being sung, the word being spoken, the word being prayed, and the word being related to each other as we go about our business. Isn't that beautiful? Look, worship that we are doing this morning doesn't just impact this hour and a half or so we're in. It impacts the next six days before you come back again. That's what good worship should do. Amen? Amen. Father, help us this morning as we come. Father, I, I, um, I struggle in many ways here to think that there's so much more I would love to say about this passage. And perhaps there's more discussions that need to be had. But God, my hope and prayer is that we've seen the center point. Christ made clear. That's what we're about. That's what this worship's all about. That's why we take the Lord's table each week. It's why we preach the word that Christ might be made clear. Anything that we would do here that would detract from that, God, help us to correct it in due course, be humble enough to learn where we can be, do differently or do better so that, Jesus, you may be seen more clear not only to the precious souls sitting in this room, but the people who, who may be sitting in this room next week or the months ahead. We love you, Jesus. It's in Christ's name. Amen.